Hello and welcome to She Wrote Too, the podcast that shines a light on the remarkable yet often overlooked women writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In each episode, we focus on a work of literature that we think deserves to be better known today. I'm Caroline Rance. I'm Nicola Morgan. Together we invite you to join us as we unearth neglected voices, rediscover hidden tales and celebrate the literary brilliance of the women who have gone before us. We'll delve into the lives and works of unsung heroines who challenge social norms with wit and ingenuity. We'll not only discuss their writings, but also the historical context that shaped their lives and the challenges they faced as women in a predominantly male literary landscape. Don't miss a single episode of She Wrote Too. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and be a part of the tribute to the female writers who deserve to be read, celebrated and remembered. We're going to talk about the book Lolly Willows, the alternative title being The Loving Huntsman. And this is by Sylvia Townsend Warner and it was published in 1926. So this is a bit of a spoiler warning. We are going to talk about the plot of the novel, so if you don't want to hear about this, then whiz past this section. But we will be talking about the plot all the time, really, won't we? Yeah, because it is a podcast about the book, so we do need to talk about it. So, Lolly Willows, it starts with a character named Laura Willows, and we'll say a bit more about that naming later on. And she is a spinster, she's quite from quite a well-to-do family who run a brewery, and she's had a fairly idyllic countryside life until the death of her beloved father, Everard, and that's when things begin to change for Laura. Everard was quite a protector of Laura, wasn't he? And yeah. once he's not there anymore, things turn a little rougher. It gets assumed that Laura is going to be taken in by one of her brothers, I don't think she gets to choose which one, does she? She just has so. to go to London. No, because I think the others it want... is decided for her that she will go to the brother who lives in London. Yeah. So she has to go and live with her brother and his wife. And she's quite useful to them because she looks after the children. Yes, there's two little girls, so she looks after them. She does a lot of admin and household duties. So she's within this setting of domesticity. And then... That works for her for quite a while. And she's actually there for quite a long time, isn't it's it? It's about 20 years. Yes. Yeah, so, and, yeah. But slowly she gets this yearning for something else. Yes, and she can't quite identify it. When she's out and about around the city, she just feels this strange, almost vision of herself being on her own in the countryside somewhere. But she can't exactly picture it. Yeah. So she goes. She decides. She gets to 47 which is a bit of a menopausal age, I would yes, think. Yes, it's a really good age, and, I reckon. Yes, yeah. and decides that she will go to Great Mop in Buckinghamshire, which is interesting to Caroline and I, as that's where we both live. Well, not Great Mop, but Buckinghamshire in yes. the Chilterns. Yeah, we haven't really been able to work out whether Great Mop's based on a particular place. I think it's probably a combination of different areas. But it's a village of 227 people that's surrounded by beech woods and... Laura hasn't been there before, has she? She's decided that's where she's going to go. Yes, because she smells some flowers that are very evocative for her and she asks where they're from and they're from the Chilterns. 
I think they're from Cheney's. They are, yeah, which is a real place. So yeah. yeah. And um, so she immediately goes and buys a map and she wants all the footpaths. She's She really invests in this idea that she's going to get to know this countryside and that she's going to find a new part of her life. Hmm. But her family don't take it seriously, do they? She's got <laughs> some very specific plans about exactly where she's going and what she's going to do and they think it's all just a bit of a fantasy and it's quite silly. Yes, but she does it anyway. So off she goes. But she finds that the people in the village are quite an unusual bunch. She sort of hears distant music some nights and sees that the people are all going off somewhere. But she settles in well. She's a lodger with a landlady called Mrs Leake, um, <laughs> who she gets on well with. Um, and she spends lots of time exploring the paths and the surrounding countryside and really getting to know it very intimately. She does. Sorry, I was laughing about Mrs Leake because yeah. I find her quite a comedy character. Yes. Yeah. Um, so she's quite an interesting person for us to explore, actually, at some point. So, yes, Lolly's life takes a turn. <laughs> So, Caroline, you've done some interesting research on the author that you can share with us. Yes, I'm going to just give a very brief biography. I obviously can't go into everything that she did in her life because it was very long and interesting, but I'll give an overview. Um, And for those who are interested, there's an excellent book called Sylvia Townsend Warner, A Biography by Claire Harmon. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. That goes into a lot more detail. So Sylvia Townsend Warner was born in Harrow in 1893 and her dad worked at Harrow School. He was a highly respected history teacher there. Sylvia herself didn't actually go to school. She didn't have a formal education, but she did have access to a lot of books, a lot of the knowledge of her dad and the other teachers. Um, So she did gain a great deal of education in her own way I described this once as she was stealing an education because actually if if you've got all those resources and you've got Mm. a parent who can help you and Mm. that sort of thing you are getting an education even though it's not a formal one yes and I think many many women probably had to do oh yeah definitely Um, and also this did give her a lot of freedom and time to foster her own intellectual curiosity as well and to develop this amazing imagination that is visible in her writings. Now she started out actually as a musician. She was really into composition um, and very talented musician. She also, as a young woman, started having an affair with the music master at Harrow, who was called Percy Buck, um, who was married with five kids. But she then wanted to go and study musical composition abroad. She was about to do that, but then the First World War happened, so that put paid to that idea. And like many young women of the time, she worked in a munitions factory. During the war, her father died, and she then moved to London to live an independent life. She was working on the editorial committee of quite a serious project called the Carnegie UK Trusts. Tudor Church Music Project. They were trying to catalogue all of the music from that historical era and Percy Buck was involved in that as well. So Percy was quite a significant figure in her life, wasn't he? Yes. In her development and Mm. 
Yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she also met a lot of other people in London. She met members of the famous Bloomsbury group, including Virginia Woolf. Um, so she started to build up contacts within the literary world, and she did publish a collection of poetry in 1925 called The Espalier, and that's just a year before Lolly Willows came out in 1926. And Lolly Willows was very well received at the time. You know, she, it was, yes. We might be looking at it as something that's been neglected since then, but at the time that was pretty popular. And she they did go on to write further novels and novellas and lots of poetry and literary journalism and all sorts of things as well. Now, one of these literary friends was a novelist called Theodore Francis Powys, and he lived in Dorset, and she would go down there to visit him. And while there, she met a young female poet called Valentine Ackland, and they ah, fell in love. Valentine. Yes. yes, she was her Valentine. Yeah. So they were then together for the rest of Valentine's life. They started living together in East Chaldon in Dorset. Now, at that time, of course, same-sex marriage was not legal, so they wouldn't be able to get married. But they did consider their relationship to be a marriage. They would celebrate their anniversaries. And they seem to have been pretty well accepted within their social circle. As a married couple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah people people just seem to take that for granted that, that was you know, they were a couple. Um, Valentine was quite a lot younger than Sylvia, and she was trying to get started in her career as a poet. Um, and to help her along a bit, Sylvia suggested that they publish a joint collection of poetry, which they did. It was called Whether a Dove or a Seagull. And that... It was a kind of experimental thing. They put all their poems mixed up together and they didn't say whose was whose. And it didn't really go down that well with the reading public. I don't think people got it. And Valentine was also quite a heavy drinker. So although she managed to hide that from Sylvia, that was also taking its toll on her ambitions to be a writer. She managed to hide that from Sylvia? Somehow, yes. Um, I think she was drinking in secret and presumably keeping up a level of intoxication that meant that she was the same all the time I don't know oh my goodness Mm. when they were living together she didn't notice Mm. goodness well we don't really know I mean I suppose Valentine felt that she was hiding it whether Sylvia (laughs) did see it a lot I don't know in their 30s they became communists they joined the communist party they were really active members they went to Spain during the civil war to work with the Red Cross on the Republican side and Valentine in particular ended up under MI5 surveillance. Wow. Um, which sounds quite dramatic. I don't see it. She probably didn't know about it, but that has come to light later on. Valentine later went back to religion. She became Roman Catholic. This was quite difficult for Sylvia to accept because she was an atheist. And Sylvia was still an ardent communist, whereas Valentine moved away from that. For those who want more info about Valentine's life, by the way, there is a biography of her as well, which is called Valentine Ackland, A Transgressive Life, and that's by Francis Bingham. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Great. So did Valentine actually end up publishing much herself, or did... Yeah, she was... Yeah, poetry published in literary magazines and that kind of thing. But she and Sylvia were together for nearly 40 years in the end, it's not all plain sailing. There are times when their relationship was under a lot of strain. Oh, there's an interesting story, yeah. isn't there? I know this one that you're going to say next. Yeah, there <laughs> is. So she, then Valentine fell in love with an American writer called Elizabeth Wade White. 
and at one point she moved Elizabeth into the home that she shared with Sylvia to kind of experiment as to whether this was going to be a good long-term relationship and Sylvia <laughs> actually moved out and went to live in a hotel for a month it didn't work out with Elizabeth so Sylvia went back and the marriage just continued I find that extraordinary I yeah. suppose I suppose it does happen in marriages but but the way that she gave her the space to explore yeah. a new relationship yeah. and then and then come back yeah. as if as if nothing mm. I'm sure it wasn't as if nothing no, had I don't happened. think it was but um Yes, it's an interesting choice. Yes. Mm. Valentine died in 1969 of breast cancer. Um, Sylvia was really bereft, having been together for so long. She carried on living for another nine years until 1978. She spent quite a bit of that time going over the letters that she and Valentine had sent to each other. She was preparing them for possible publication in the future. They were much later published. So that is a really brief overview of Sylvia's life. She was pretty well known in her time. You know, she wrote for The New Yorker during the later part of her life, so she had a big audience. Yes, and as you mentioned earlier, although mm. although her work has been neglected, it was mm. very successful and well-respected, yeah. and she was in all the right sets. But you would think from that time, mm. even though she was actually writing before Virginia Woolf, that... You know, there's only Virginia Woolf yeah. writing at that time, <laughs> which is why we're looking at some of these writers that seem to have been forgotten when they, they, they don't deserve to yes. be forgotten, do I they? I think there's a more interest in recent years in Sylvia Townsend Warner, and there's mm. been a bit more academic writing about her. Yes. Um, we, we found quite a few blog posts about her while we were researching this. Yes. And there is, of course, a Sylvia Townsend Warner Society, which celebrates her life and work. So we'll put a link to that as well for those who are interested. Let's talk about the title, Lolly Willows, because this is an interesting choice from the author. As we know, the main character is called Laura Willows, and yet she has picked up this nickname that she goes by among her family through most of her life. Yeah, she picks this nickname up from a child who can't say her name properly. She's given a new identity by a child, and then it's picked up by the rest of her family, other than her dad who is um he he's really fond of her isn't he he's a really good yeah. dad and he does not call her lolly at all he always calls her laura yes but i think that this name point is significant because of the forging of identity of her by other people of other people forcing her to be called something that she isn't yeah there's a point where um she's living with her brother's family in London and she realises that she's become known as either Aunt Lolly or as Miss Willows depending on the formality <laughs> of the context and it actually says Laura had been put away and I think that's a really interesting phrase and um, put away because that does suggest that that identity can come back with a vengeance. Ah I hadn't thought of it mm. like that yes it does. So, Laura goes off to Great Mop, and she becomes... What does she become, Caroline? 
Well, she becomes a witch, which is quite an unusual thing to happen in this book that seems to be almost like a comedy of manners, isn't it? It's very, there's a lot of domesticity, it's a normal 1920s life. So you then suddenly get this supernatural and fantastical element arriving. It's quite surprising, isn't it? Yeah. And so we suddenly get this introduction of the, the idea that the people in Great Mop are involved in witchcraft. Now, We have been thinking about what witchcraft means to the story and to Laura in particular. Yeah, and it's safe to say it's not a traditional depiction of witchcraft at all, is it? Um, You might think of the witches as being like the characters from Macbeth or evil characters who have made a pact with the devil who might be putting curses on people. And then um, at the other end of the spectrum, you might think of a good witch who uses magic to help people. But this is neither of those things. Something that they say about witches... So I'm going to give a bit of a quote here. You don't become a witch to run around being harmful or run around being helpful either. A district visitor on a broomstick. It's to escape all that. To have a life of one's own. Not an existence doled out to you by others. It was more to do with her personal freedom. Yes, so she has been looking after other people for the last almost 20 years and witchcraft almost represents a shaking off of all of that responsibility. She doesn't have to take responsibility for anybody else, she doesn't have to care for them, it's just about being independent. And I think that within the world of Lolly Willows that's all witchcraft is. And I think that's making a really interesting point about society that women's independence is seen as this unnerving, unnatural thing. It's something that I have kept changing my mind about as I've read this book a couple of times, is that, first of all, I thought the witchcraft was, as I've said to Caroline in our discussions off mic, a rewilding of Laura, of her coming back to nature, which is where she wanted to be that's what she had the urge to do and it's that connection with nature but that's that's a bit white witchy isn't it it is yeah which is not what Um, this is well a thing that we want to talk about as, as well as witchcraft is aging because laura makes this choice at quite an important time very significant probably to us two podcasters at 47 when she is probably, you know, no longer able to get married or have children. And so has got a different perspective on life. And we'd heard criticism earlier on in the story of Laura from a younger woman. Yes, it's her niece, Fancy, who, you know, during the time that Laura is looking after them, the nieces grow up and they go on to get married quite young. So Fancy says to her husband, how unenterprising women were in the old days. Look at Aunt Lolly. Grandfather left her 500 a year and she was nearly 30 when he died and yet she could find nothing better to do than settle down with Mum and Dad and stay there ever since. Because <laughs> Fancy is saying this before Laura has gone to Great Mop. And yeah, I think that is interesting about how this is also a historical era after the First World War. Women were feeling that they had more independence. There were you know, changes in fashion. And we've got this younger woman not understanding the choices or lack of that an older woman had. 
Yes, absolutely. This is 1926, isn't it? Yeah. This is set in. So it's actually before there was universal suffrage for women. Actually, I think it's um, 1922, but... Yeah, was it 22? In so in that, at that point, in 1918, they got... Women over 30 with property had mm. the vote, didn't they? Yes, but Laura wouldn't have the vote. I did look this up, and you know, within the technicalities of it, you know, she is quite a well-to-do woman, but she wouldn't actually have the vote within the law. I think this was because she wasn't married to a householder and she didn't have her own independent household. No, because she was renting, wasn't she? Yeah, because you did have to have a property. And, yeah, so she is quite powerless in the world, isn't she? Mm. And perhaps the younger women... Actually, we'll talk about this now, because it's an argument I have with some people about the importance of history and how it impacts on what we're doing now Mm. and some people think so I have this argument about equality for women and they don't see why all this historical patriarchal system impacts today they Mm. say no it doesn't Mm -hmm. you know we've got the equal pay act we've got this we've got that it's like but it's all set up for men yeah and (laughs) and you know that's not their fault any more than it is ours but this is what the younger woman isn't seeing isn't now I am going off on one aren't I I will rein myself back yeah now I've got something to say about that as well so I think we should carry on (laughs) not rein it Um, so you see on social media people saying um, well men saying if you reverse the genders there would be an outcry and any time that people have that argument about reversing the genders, you, <laughs> you think, well, you'd have to reverse thousands <laughs> and thousands of years of history of oppression. Yes. Um, you can't just switch the... Um, <laughs> One little tiny yeah, bit. without that whole context dating back to the year dot. I actually had this argument with um, someone who also has a podcast. It's quite a nice podcast. And uh, he... He argued really strongly against what I was saying mm. like that. And then, in the end, he he wrote me a letter of apology because mm. he had been looking into racism mm-hmm. and he understood feminism on on the basis of his growing understanding of racism. Oh, right. Of how he, he'd started to understand how there were oppressive systems mm-hmm. that impact on people, yeah. even though things are supposed to be amended. Mm. So it took that journey for him, yeah. for him to understand what I had been saying. Mm. But it was very nice, actually, to get someone saying, I'm really sorry, you're right. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't happen very often. So, uh, yeah, but we are. Right. So ageing is, a, is a, a thing in this story, and I think and it, quite an important theme, because it's when Lolly... Laura gets her confidence to mm. go and find who Laura is. And traditionally, the figure of the witch usually was an older woman. If we look way back to the witch trials of the 17th century, yes, there were younger people and men involved in it as well, but generally the figure of the witch was this much older, quite mysterious, perhaps widowed, isolated woman. And I think there's a kind of fear about women's independence you know, they're past the age of having to look after everybody also have gained wisdom being able to see the tactics that people are using to keep them under control and they're able to move away from that and that's very threatening to society in general 
Absolutely. And so then let's move on to how uh, Townsend Warner uses humour to put all this together. Mm. Because I think that's really important for many reasons, actually. One of them to show how she, as a writer, has got a really good sense of humour and is funny. And that in itself is an empowering thing for women to show that actually, yeah, we are funny. Mm. Me and Caroline especially funny. (laughs) Um, But uh, we're just not doing it today. But that's one of the things that men like to claim for themselves, Mm. humour. Yeah. They don't like women being funny. Mm. It's it's not subservient enough. No. It's too adversarial. And so by the author using humour, I think she's being rebellious. Yes. And it's a subtle kind of humour, isn't it? Very it's not subtle. laugh out loud jokes on every page. It's a kind of Jane Austen-esque um, way so. with words. Although it does make me laugh out loud. <laughs> Mrs. Leake, particularly. Yeah. <laughs> There's this character called Mrs. Leake. Um, and she is Laura's landlady. And she knows everybody in the village, doesn't she? Mm. She's not particularly friends with any of them. No. But she knows all their business. Yeah, she knows exactly what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and the, there's a lot of humour around her. The way she tells the stories of, of what's going on. Trying to find something to give as an example of that. Mm. But um, We need evidence from the text. Evidence we? from the text, yes. Take my word for it. Mrs. Leake is very funny. Yes. And uh, in a way that... Yes, it is Jane Austen-esque. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always love the quote from uh, Jane Austen in Pride and Prejudice that Mr. Collins was not a sensible man. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of my most favourite quotes ever because it's Jane Austen absolutely beating Mr. Collins up, yeah. but in the most subtle and genteel way. Mm. And that's quite a lot of what we're getting here. You're listening to She Wrote Too, the podcast that celebrates the women writers of the past. For more content, including photos, articles and links to interesting books and websites, visit us at shewrote2.substack.com. So one of the very interesting characters in this tale is that of Titus. Yeah, and just to explain for those who perhaps haven't read it who Titus is, he is Laura's nephew and she's quite close with him. And when she is intending to move to Great Mop, she discusses it with him. He then later appears to visit her. He's the only one of her family who has said that he will come and see her. So she's quite pleased about that. They have a nice visit and then he goes home and she thinks they're not going to see each other for a little while. She then receives a letter from Titus's mum saying that he's decided to move there. And that disconcerts her. Yes, because she has set up this life where she's found some kind of freedom away from her family and has no one that demands anything of her Mm. or takes up her time or energy. And then along comes Titus, Mm. who decides that he's going to come to Great Mop to write a book. Yes, he does. He's, his plan eventually is to go and run the family brewery, but he wants to write a book about Henry Fusley, who is a painter who he describes as a neglected figure. 
Now what I find quite interesting about his arrival is that his mum writes to Laura and she says um, something along the lines of how, oh, it's great that Laura will be there to look after him. And she says, men are so helpless. Yes, those helpless men. Now there's lots of times when Laura actually does end up having to help him, aren't there? Yes. Um, there's an instance where he's injured. Yes, yeah, so um, first of all, he finds that the milk keeps going off all the time, which is just a minor annoyance to him. But he asks her to make a cover for it, which she does. He wants some particular blue beads that she has to then go and walk across the field to another village to buy. So he's almost outsourcing all the little mundanities of life to her while he gets on with this important manly work of writing <laughs> his book. Yes. And this is this is it, isn't it? Mm. And then the other thing that he does, which is... So he, he's, he's doing that bit, which saps her energy mm. somewhat. But then he ingratiates himself into the whole village. Mm. It's only a village of 250 people, mm. so there aren't a great deal of institutions. But the ones that exist, he gets into them all. So for example, the local cricket club. Mm. Um, but there are others that he joins as yeah. well. And everybody knows him, everybody likes him, and he, and he ends up in a position of power in a way one of the recurring phrases that people say is that, oh he's such a nice young gentleman nice um, and the author makes a point of repeating that quite a few times to show that he has just become part of this community and everybody thinks he's great yes and it gets worse than that because I think Laura almost could cope with him being friends with everybody but then he starts to dominate her woodlands mm. and her her bit that her, she had claimed for herself and when he goes out on a walk with her I can't remember the phrase but she says she has to surrender her walks to him mm. or something like that and she well, almost feels embarrassed to be with him she, he's walking ahead of her on a narrow path isn't he and yeah, he's so talking loudly his voice is going out into the space of the woodlands and she feels almost as though the wood is shrinking back from him. She can sense this feeling that it just doesn't want him there. Yes. So he doesn't really belong. And he, in within her house, he puts his things everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's a, a particular instance of him putting his tobacco and his cap. And so it's he's taking over everything. So mm -hmm. he's in the institution, so he's in her house, and then he's in her woodlands. And ultimately, she feels that there's a scene where she feels that there's nothing left for her but a sour field and it says even though even this was not truly hers for here also Titus walked beside her and called her Aunt Lolly mm -hmm. so the fact that he doesn't call her Laura and calls her Aunt Lolly is quite significant isn't it? <laughs> There's a part that I found interesting which occurs in the story about a month or so after Laura has arrived in Great Mop and she suddenly realises that she has left her old life behind. And that's taken her a little while to get to that stage. She says the weight of all her unhappy years seemed for a moment to weigh her bosom down to the earth. She trembled, understanding for the first time how miserable she had been and in another moment she was released. And I find that quite poignant and she's just realising just how difficult life was for her, how dull and how miserable. And perhaps while she was in that, she hadn't realised it. But then there's a quite a humorous bit that comes after that, where she's wondering whether she should forgive her 
family for being tyrants. And she realises it's probably not worth it because, I'll read a little section from it, she says, she had not in any case a forgiving nature and the injury they had done her was not done by them. If she was to start forgiving, she must needs forgive society, the law, the church, the history of Europe, the Old Testament, great-great-aunt Salome and her prayer book, the Bank of England, prostitution, the architect of Axley Terrace, and half a dozen other useful props of civilization. This is just absolutely brilliant. I love this bit because not only does it get the feminist message across and show what Laura has been having to contend with, but it's another great example of the humour in this novel mm. because it's irreverent, I yeah. think was a word I was using to describe it earlier. It's Well, it's noticing. It's noticing what has been set up. I'm just talking about it with a kind of... It feels like it's been written with a wry smile. I don't know if yeah. that's just me. <laughs> yeah, I think this is... Yes, it is humorous, but it's also completely true it's as well. Serious. Um, and this is just giving that entire background of all these institutions that you have to fight against the whole lot if you're going to fight against any, and sometimes it doesn't feel worth it. It brings us back to Laura in her field, really, doesn't it? Mm. Of what she's had to fight against yeah. her entire time. One topic that we've been discussing is the role of the devil and religion. What is the role of the devil in this? Because he just is not... He just doesn't seem particularly evil. No, he comes into this as an actual character in the story. He's not just a representative idea. He's actually there. And when Laura first meets him, he just wanders out of the woodlands. He's got his corduroy coat and gaiters on. He's just like any country gentleman. And he just seems quite a benign character. Mm. But she believes that she's made a pact with him after she gets her familiar, doesn't Mm. she? it sort of all becomes real to her when she gets her little kitten. Yeah, so she has been out in the woods and she actually cries out that she can't go back to her old life and that she needs help. And when she returns home after that, she finds this tiny little kitten in her room, doesn't know how it's got there, and that um, scratches her and draws blood. Mm. And that brings to her a realisation that she feels she has made a pact with the devil. Mm. And this is something I found really confusing because there's not much of a mention of good and evil as such or God and the devil, but the devil definitely shows up and she feels that she has made a pact with him. Then her life changes for the better. For now, and we don't ever really find out what's likely to happen after she dies because that's way in the future. There's no indication that she will be looking at eternal damnation, is there? No, we don't get any hint of that at all. But we don't get any hints of it, of this devil character being a biblical type devil. No. Or am I missing something? No, he's not like traditional depictions of the devil where you might have this huge goat-like character <laughs> with crimson skin and horns. And <laughs> No, but the cat is very important. Caroline, you, you mm. showed me a picture of a cat that's depicted in literature about... Witchcraft, yes. and that's where Laura mm-hmm. names her is, cat. Yes, it's the famous from. picture of Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General, and the witches in that picture are naming their imps or their familiars, and one of them is called Vinegar Tom, and Laura refers directly to that picture and says that that's where she got the name from for her little cat. 
So it brings us back to our discussion about what an earth witchcraft is, <laughs> doesn't it really? But I think what we've decided to accept is that there is this character called the devil who seems to be the devil. Yeah. First I wondered if he was purely allegorical and symbolic and that perhaps she was interpreting normal interactions with people as something more and that perhaps he's just a a local person and she interprets him as being Satan when he isn't. But I don't think that's the case. I think he is the character of Satan and I think Townsend Warner intended him to be that. Mm. Yes, I thought that he was a symbol of nature and rejection of of organised religion and a return to nature. But no, it is a fantastical story. Yes. So the devil is perfectly entitled to turn up. And um, I think he does symbolise those things as well. One thing that he says that does suggest he's symbolic of nature is that he tells Laura that she will always be able to find him in the woodland so if she needs him that is the place to go and of course that's the place that she has this affinity with as we see the loving huntsman wins lolly over in what could be seen as a rejection of the church christianity and arguably therefore the patriarchy this charming country gentleman hunts and wins her soul. Strange things can happen in the Chilterns. Thank you for listening to this episode on Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner. You have been listening to She Wrote Too with Nicola Morgan and Caroline Rance. To make sure you're one of the first to hear about our next episode, Subscribe at shewrote2.substack.com. That's shewrote2.substack.com, where you can also find extra content and join our social media networks. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait to welcome you again next time. Mm-hmm.